Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We are celebrating New York art history this month on the Bowery Boys podcast. Last episode, we looked at the life and work of painter Edward Hopper, who created some of America's most important works of art from a studio on Washington Square Park, including the mysterious painting Nighthawks, completed here in 1942. But over 100 years before Edward Hopper, and just 80 meters away from his old townhouse to the rooftop of a university building, a landmark scientific achievement would launch another artistic endeavor, portrait photography. The following episode on the subject of that photographic portrait, Dorothy Catherine Draper, is taken from my podcast series called The First, which had a respectable run a few years ago. Now, that old feed will be going away soon, so I wanted to present some of that show's greatest hits over the next few months, in between our regular shows here, as bonus stories about American history. And also, this is my excuse to celebrate photographer Nan Golden and the film All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, nominated for this year's Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The film features both her current activism, but is also a look back at her career, with many of her most spectacular photographs taken not very far from the spot featured in the podcast today. And as you listen, I want you to think about the photography in your own life, and think about how we've gone from photographs as difficult-to-capture scientific achievements to images that are taken so easily that we barely think about them. Okay, wherever you're listening to this right now, maybe not if you're in a car, but if you're on the train or you're sitting at home, in a moment, I want you to completely hold still. No blinking, only the softest of breaths, no moving your head or your shoulders. You're going to do this for 65 seconds as you listen to the words of Elizabeth Flint Wade, a late 19th century photographer and writer, as she discusses the history of photography from an article in St. Nicholas Magazine published in September of 1898. Are you ready? You may begin now. There is a wonderful alchemist, photography from whom ever since the world began, men tried to wrest his secrets in vain. 10 seconds. Until half a century ago, when, by the merest chance, the door leading into his mystic chamber was pushed ajar. 20 seconds. Photography, an art of preserving the writing of light, was revealed, and the secret of the old alchemist was his no longer. 30 seconds. To America belongs the honor of making the first photographic portrait the artist being John Draper, a professor, and afterward the president of the 40 University seconds. of New York. 
His victim was his sister, Miss Catherine Draper. He powdered her face that the likeness might be more quickly impressed on the sensitive plate. Fifty seconds. And for at least thirty minutes, Miss Draper sat, or at least tried to sit, as immovable as a statue. Sixty seconds. And stop. You just performed the same action as Dorothy Catherine Draper in the summer of 1840. The entire duration of the shoot may have been 30 minutes, but most believe that the exposure of the image itself took only 65 seconds. It wasn't easy to sit so perfectly still while wearing her Sunday best. But at the end of those 65 seconds, Miss Draper made history becoming the first woman ever photographed for a portrait. Do you remember taking your first pictures in school? You know, picture day, when you got that strip of photographs that you took home and you had to cut them apart with scissors? As a kid, I had been in dozens of pictures by that point, in kindergarten or first grade, but I was mostly unaware of them. You know, they were pictures of me in a high chair with my face in a birthday cake. Today, kids of that age are in significantly more photographs. An unfortunate side effect of being in all these pictures is that you're able to judge negatively your own image in that portrait. The notion of vanity and self-shame or embarrassment crop up at an even earlier age today. With all the great wonders that photography has brought us, this is an unfortunate side effect Although this hasn't stopped people from taking thousands, millions, perhaps billions of selfies each year. But imagine a time when there was no self-awareness of your appearance in a photograph because there simply were no photographs. This is the story of the first woman who ever posed for a portrait and could, for the first time, look upon her own face on a permanent surface, not a painting not a sketch, but a new form of art. In 1840, the idea of photography was still incredibly experimental. The century began with European minds first putting together the notion of capturing permanent images from life onto light-sensitive materials. The true inventor of the photographic process was a Frenchman named Joseph Nicephore Niepce, who made the first photographic image in 1827, showing a faint view out the window of his country estate. However, you may be more familiar with the work of his business partner, Louis Degar. Niepce died a few years after taking the first picture, and Degar fully developed the process using silver-painted copper sheets and a series of chemicals, creating what would be called the daguerreotype. His 1838 daguerreotype of the Boulevard du Temple in Paris is the first to include human beings, albeit very small and obscure. The more you look at this photograph, the more magical it becomes. This is the first significant vista of the world, taken not by paint or pencil, but by light and chemicals. Degas was hailed the world over, and inventors in other countries rushed to improve his methods for themselves. In England, an astronomer and mathematician named John Herschel was the first to create a glass negative and is also believed to be the first to coin the phrase photography in 1839. Now, Mr. Herschel will come back into the story near the end. However, 
Another great name in early photography would come from England. His name was John William Draper, but he makes his discoveries in the fairly new country of the United States of America. His sister was Dorothy Catherine Draper. Ms. Draper, or Catherine, as those closest would have known her, was born in Newcastle in northern England in 1807, and her brother John was born in Liverpool four years later. They and their two sisters were the children of a Methodist minister and his wife, and perhaps not the individuals who you'd think would buck social norms. They also were not terribly rich, either. Being a family of three daughters and one son, it was the son, John, who received the stellar education. When he entered the University of London at age 18, it was partially due to the funds young Catherine and her sisters made as tutors and art teachers. It was at the university, in fact, that John fell into the charms of a most unusual woman, Ms. Antonia Cotana de Paiva Pereira Gardner, daughter of the physician of Dom Pedro I, the Emperor of Brazil, meaning her just months after Dom Pedro abdicated his throne. John married Antonia soon afterwards. Draper's father died in 1831, and the following year, John, his new wife, Antonia, Dorothy Catherine, their two sisters, and mother moved to America to a small town in Mecklenburg County, Virginia, where John had expected a job was awaiting for him. Well, it wasn't, but he was able to open a small laboratory there, conducting experiments in chemistry. And the only way the Drapers survived is principally due to Catherine and her sisters, who upon arrival in Virginia, opened the Mrs. Draper Seminary for Girls. It's believed that Catherine paid both for their house here in Virginia and for John to go to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, this is not exactly typical of the 1830s, the women being the breadwinners here, but this does speak to a certain understanding of the age, that an educated man was more highly prized than that of an educated woman, and that his intellectual growth was more important than hers. In 1839, John and Catherine would move to New York. The rest of the family would later follow, after John received a new job as undergraduate professor of chemistry at the University of the City of New York. Today, we just call it New York University, or NYU. In the 1830s, the new school was confined to a cathedral-like structure of somewhat absurd proportions at the northeast corner of Washington Square. This Gothic university building, its marbled halls constructed by the inmates of Sing Sing Prison, was overly grand and to its student body confirmed to be haunted. John would be a well-liked professor here. From a 1916 description of Draper, the students like Professor Draper, even though his physical aversion to tobacco prevented them from smoking during his lectures. So here's John in 1839. He had two children, would eventually have six children. This very big family resituated to a house in Greenwich Village. John's wife, Antonia, would be quite ill for many years. 
Sister Catherine would tend to the children as well, becoming known as Auntie or Auntie Catherine, and seeing to their education as well. But now she was as fascinated with chemistry and with the other sciences as her younger brother was. And so something rather extraordinary for the day occurred. Catherine became a research assistant in her brother's laboratory at the university. Now, perhaps you're asking, it's 1839 and Miss Draper is 32 years old. Why hasn't she gotten married? She was fashionable, intelligent, sophisticated, it seems, well-spoken, with a delicate accent, quite pretty, if obviously very distracted. Well, for a time, she did have a suitor, and a most unique one at that, a handsome 19-year-old named Andrew Haswell Green. Now, the details are pretty vague, as you might suspect, but we do know that Green was a man of modest means who worked in the mercantile trade. It suggested that John asked his sister to end this little courtship, saying that Green was a man of no prospects. She did, in fact, call off the relationship. Green would later in life become a successful lawyer and civic leader, becoming the head of the Central Park Commission and the figure most responsible for the development of the five boroughs of Greater New York. So a man of many prospects, it would turn out. Both Andrew Haswell Green and Dorothy Catherine Draper would remain unmarried their entire lives. I wouldn't take this to suggest that Catherine was necessarily unhappy. A marriage would have most likely taken her out of the university laboratory. She may very well have chosen to remain her brother's assistant, as there was much excitement at the university in the science hallways, thanks mostly to another young professor named Samuel Morse who had just stumbled upon the discovery of sending electrical messages via a single wire, the invention of the telegraph. Great revolutionary inventions, such as the telegraph or the railroad or photography, would have caused an equally great competition among other inventors to expand or improve upon their original discovery. Degar's photographic techniques would have been a subject of much fascination to people like Draper and his colleague Samuel Morse, and both would dive into the idea of using light to capture a permanent image upon a physical surface. If either Draper or Morse were thinking about capturing the human face by late 1839, little did they know that the race to achieve this had already been won. A 30-year-old Philadelphia chemist named Robert Cornelius had already managed to capture an image of his own face upon a silver-coated copper plate. This would effectively be the world's first selfie, but this was no simple point-and-click. Cornelius removed the covering from the lens, quickly ran in front of the camera, then stood motionless for several minutes as the images appeared upon the plate. He looks pretty cool in this picture, actually, but Cornelius would abandon photography for other professions, and thus he's only a minor figure in the history of this medium. The future would sit with John and his assistant, Catherine, and with Mr. Telegraph himself, Samuel Morse. Indeed, Morse had met Degar in Paris and had already taken images of buildings here in New York. If Morse did try and take portraits, he was either unsuccessful or the attempts quickly faded or disintegrated. 
John was quickly proving himself a bold purveyor of this new field, and in March of 1840, he had managed something truly cosmic, taking the very first photograph of the moon from his rooftop observatory at the university. That spring, he and Morse built a glass-top photographic studio on the roof, certainly the first of its kind in the United States. The camera needed strong and perpetual light. In 1840, there was no other choice, as they only had candles and gas lighting available to them. There's a reason why portraits are so difficult, namely the subject, a naturally fidgety human being. The photographers got the exposure time down from several minutes to about 65 seconds by the summer of 1840. But that hardly made this an exercise in comfort. Let me read you from the original directions written by Mr. John Draper as to how subjects should be posed. The chair in which the sitter is placed has a staff on its back, terminated in an iron ring which supports the head, so arranged as to have motion in direction to suit any stature and any attitude. By simply resting the back or the side of the head against this ring, it may be kept sufficiently still to allow the minutest marks on the face to be copied. The hands should never rest upon the chest, for the motion of respiration disturbs them so much as to make them of a thick and clumsy appearance, destroying also the representation of the veins on the back, which, if they are held motionless, are copied with surprising beauty. The person, if a man, must be dressed in a clear gray coat and pantaloons of a little deeper hue. The toilet of a lady should be of the same shades, and in all cases black must be constantly avoided, as well as green and red. In July of 1840, Dorothy Catherine Draper agreed to sit in this stiff-backed contraption. Now, far from being a simple model or a mannequin, she would have been quite familiar with the photographic process. But as she sat down on that hot summer day, trapped within a glass box atop one of the tallest buildings in New York at the time, mirrors reflecting sunlight upon her face, and facing into a camera fashioned from a cigar box, I do wonder what she might have been thinking at that time. John Draper later described the transfixing allure of these early portraits. The eye appears beautifully, the iris with sharpness, and the white dot upon it with such strength and so much reality and life as to surprise those who have never seen it before. Many are persuaded that the pencil of the painter has been secretly employed to give this finishing touch. A male assistant of Draper's had actually sat in the chair first, and a few images may have been taken at this time. But given the morality of the day, it probably would have been impossible to have a woman in this state of confined and uncomfortable situation had it not been his sister, and had his sister not been his assistant. Fate had put her in that chair in the summer of 1840, her face powdered with flour to enhance its contrasts. She wore a large bonnet lined with cloth flowers, her body engulfed in a dress of wide ruffles. At her brother's prompt, she looked straight at the camera, stoic, emotionless, 
for 65 seconds. I'm sure it was terrible. She must have been sweating from every pore in her body. Absent in her eyes, however, is something that we take for granted in most portrait photography. That question of, how do I look? Not only is Catherine aware of this as an experiment, she seems to be absent even of self-awareness of how she might appear. Her eyes seem to say, John, are we about done here? She holds it together like a model posing for a portrait or a sculpture. And 65 seconds later, she becomes immortal. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba -ba. 
The following is an excerpt of a letter written by Henry Draper, the son of John William Draper, stationed at Harper's Ferry on August 15th, 1862. Dear parents, aunt, and sister, Yesterday we received your box all safe, containing all the things except ham, which I suppose there was no room for and which we do not require now. Brady is on here taking photographs of the 22nd and has already made $400. The other day they drove him in an ambulance some distance from the camp to take parade, but the vile vehicle rolled so that before they could stop, the nitrate bath was all over him. I am going as soon as an opportunity offers to see his views, which are said to be very fine, particularly one of the Shenandoah. Signed, Henry Draper. The Brady in that letter was Matthew Brady, the legendary war photographer who famously took a portrait of presidential candidate Abraham Lincoln a couple years earlier, photographs which Lincoln himself claimed helped get him elected. In the 20 years that Dorothy Catherine Draper sat for her uncomfortable portrait, the art of photography had come into its own. Now, back in 1840, word of Catherine's photograph and the magic made on the university rooftop spread throughout the city. Soon, New York's elites took private tours of the studio and requested daguerreotypes made of themselves. It did not take long for other, more enterprising sorts to latch on to this new fad for a profit. Within a few years, the daguerreotype had become a luxury item from a recollection taken from the New York Sun. The general interest that was excited caused people to wish for daguerreotypes, and amateurs and regular daguerreans appeared all over the country. The best known of New York's daguerreotypers were the Mead Brothers, Bogardist, Powelson, and Pickwell. The Mead Brothers had the distinction of being the only daguerreotypers in the world to take a daguerreotype of Degar himself. The invention had escaped its inventors to thrive in the wild. John William Draper's fate would lay elsewhere. The following year, Draper would found the university's College of Medicine, today the NYU School of Medicine. John would go on to become one of America's great thinkers of the mid-19th century pivotal in various discoveries related to chemistry and writing a number of science and history books. Draper created a little bit of a kingdom for his family when he bought a country house in the charming town of Hastings in New York's Westchester County. Several cottages were built upon the property, including one specifically for his sister, Dorothy Catherine Draper. In reading through documents and letters at the Hastings Historical Society, located in today's village of Hastings-on-Hudson, more than once did I read that John's sister had a special place in the household. It seems that she matched her brother in intellect. She became a valuable mentor to John and Antonia's children. Young Henry Draper was a chip off the old block, following in his father's love of astronomy, or more specifically, astrophotography. In fact, even before Henry had entered the Union Army during the Civil War, he had built an observatory upon the family home, where he and his wife, Mary Anna Palmer, who was also an accomplished astronomer, and the rest of the Draper family could study the stars. And I do mean family, 
here, for the Drapers would spawn one additional great name in astronomy, the daughter of Henry's sister, Virginia. Her name was Antonia Mori. By the late 19th century, it was a bit easier for a young woman like Antonia to actively pursue an education. She ended up working at Harvard Observatory, crunching astronomical data for the famed physicist Edward Charles Pickering, distinguishing herself in the study of stellar spectra. Today, there's a crater on the moon named for Antonia Mori, the very same heavenly object photographed by her grandfather, John William Draper, on the rooftop of the university building back in 1840. Dorothy Catherine Draper became the head of the household when John William Draper died in 1882. His son, Henry, died the same year. Auntie Draper, as she was called then, oversaw a gigantic extended family, retreating to her gothic cottage down the hill for a little solitude. Perhaps she thought little of that old daguerreotype, wearing those old-fashioned clothes, that gigantic bonnet, and perhaps she had even forgotten how uncomfortable it was. Back in 1840, a short time after the photograph was taken, John had given the daguerreotype as a present to Sir John Herschel. Now, I mentioned him at the beginning of the show. He's an early English experimenter of the photographic process. Now, why would you pack something up in a box and send it to somebody across the ocean that you'd never met? Believe it or not, in the early days, there was some question as to whether American light would be good enough to capture these particular sorts of images. Mr. Draper attached a note with the image that said, We have heard in America that owing to the inferior brilliancy of the sun's rays, all attempts of this kind had been unsuccessful both in London and Paris. The picture had been in England for decades, but it made a return appearance to the United States in 1893, when Sir Herschel sent it to be displayed at the World's Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair. Indeed, it sat within the respectable section of the fair, a good distance from the shadow of the great Ferris wheel. Eventually, Catherine agreed to sit for another photographer, this time her nephew, Daniel Draper. Ms. Draper was an elderly woman now and posed in a bold, captivating profile. She looks a good deal more comfortable in this photograph than she did in the first. It must have been a very bittersweet moment, a bit of fame in her old age, a moment that must have reminded her of her brother and their extraordinary work together. Dorothy Catherine Draper died on December 10th, 1901, at 94 years old, at her home in Hastings, New York. Notices of her death appeared in newspapers across the country, celebrating Ms. Draper's 65 seconds of fame. From Woman's Home Companion a couple months later, when the principal business of photographers is making portraits of women, and when being photographed is one of woman's chief pleasures, it is interesting to know that the first woman who ever sat before a camera died at Hastings last month. That lady is Dorothy Catherine Draper. And so that was the story of the first portrait of a lady. 
She really is a ghost of history, and it was fascinating to extract her from the backgrounds of other people's lives. Now, at the top of the show, you heard the voice of the wonderful Susan Vollenweider providing the voice of Elizabeth Flint Wade. Susan is one half of the podcast, The History Chicks. She and her co-host, Becca Graham, do a fabulous show on the great women of history, from English queens to American writers. If you're interested, in particular, in stories of feisty women from the late 19th century, you should check out their shows that they've done on Nellie Bly, Victoria Woodhull, and Ida B. Wells. And finally, I want to thank the Hastings Historical Society in Hastings-on-Hudson for helping me with this research, providing me with boxes of correspondence, news clippings, and genealogy research. I would encourage all of you to go visit this cute little town of Hastings-on-Hudson right on the Metro North Line. It is a very enchanting place. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.